Our scripture tonight comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, would you show us what we can do to better be blessed by your word? Even as we hear the scriptures read and preached, would you give us your spirit so that we can do our part to hear you speak each week more clearly? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, several years ago, there was a evangelical preacher who made waves because he suggested that in the end, love wins. That was the phrase that he used. That was the title of his book. And on its own, I think that phrase is not objectionable. There's nothing objectionable about saying that love wins necessarily. Um, in fact, who doesn't believe that in some sense? But what he meant by the phrase love wins was the phrase that he intended was maybe there is a chance after people die. Maybe there's a second chance. Maybe unrepentant people who don't know Jesus, maybe they do go to hell. But then he also said maybe there's another chance after that. Maybe even in hell, he suggested God doesn't give up on them yet. And he theorized that even in hell, Christ proclaims the gospel to people and rescues people out of this place of judge, judgment. In other words, he was teaching what we would call post-mortem salvation. That's the phrase that that would refer to. And there are biblical reasons to believe this view is thoroughly unbiblical, um, not the least of which is the fact that God is very clear in Scripture. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So there's this finality to what happens to us once we perish. And Scripture, which is the only way we can know about God or, or know how salvation works, never, ever gives even the slightest indication that there is a so-called second chance. In fact, if you remember, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And in the story, the rich man begs Abraham, please let the poor man uh, who is now being comforted, let him bring a drop of water and put it on my tongue. And the response that Abraham receives is, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things 
and Lazarus in manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and, and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so, so Abraham tells this man there is no crossing over from, from death to life once the judgment has happened. So he says you're asking for something that's impossible. And so when this evangelical teacher suggested the possibility of post-mortem salvation, one of the texts that he pointed to was the one we are reading this evening. <clears throat> and so what I want to do is not spend our time being defensive and showing why this person is wrong to appeal to this text. Instead, I want to positively ask the question tonight, what is going on in this passage? Because my suspicion is, if you listened carefully when it was read, I hope that thought went through your head. What on earth is going on in this text? What a strange, difficult passage. And so if Peter isn't teaching that people heard the gospel after they died, then what is he saying? And so the answer that we will see tonight is under three headings. Christ suffered, Christ proclaimed, and Christ subjected. So three things Jesus does in the passage. And the first this evening is that Christ suffered. We see this in verse 18. Um, Peter starts by drawing attention to the suffering of Jesus. He says, for Christ also suffered. And before we go on, just notice that word also. So that the word also is building upon things that came before. And the context is, remember, Peter is preparing people to suffer. That is really what this book is all about. That's what this book has been given for. He wants to teach them how can they do this? How can they face the, the pain of persecution, suffering in this life? Um, whatever other sorts of evils there are ahead of them, how can they cope? And his answer here is to draw their eyes to Jesus. And his answer is to say first, Christ also suffered. You're not alone in your suffering. Christ also suffered. You're not alone in your agony. Christ also suffered. God himself, <clears throat> God himself has been there and he knows suffering firsthand. Now there are differences though. Jesus suffered, but his suffering was different. Think about the reason for his suffering. Uh, you and I suffer in part because we are united to Adam. We're united to, to him. And so when sin entered the world through him, so did death, so did sickness, so did misery, so did corruption. And Jesus didn't suffer because of that. He didn't know sin. No, Peter says Jesus came because we needed someone else to deal with our sin. He said, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's difficult to think of a more succinct, perfect encapsulation of the gospel than this phrase. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus was righteous. He wasn't guilty. He, he was innocent and he died for the unrighteous. He died for us. 
We were guilty. We weren't innocent. We were supposed to die, and yet he died instead. And so because of that, because of our sin, because we weren't innocent, we were separated from God. And that is what our sin does. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You don't have to look any further if you want to know why the death of Jesus was necessary. And the answer is, it's because of our sin. It's because of our own bad hearts. They have brought such a separation between us and God that it actually stripped us of any reason to have hope. Now you might argue with that a little bit. You might say, well, I know unbelievers who are hopeful. Uh, but I would just point this out. Their hope is, is different. It's, it's a hope that's for this time. It's a hope that's for right now. Um, they hope, but what do they hope? They hope their lives will get better. They hope their family will be safe. They hope they'll get a better job, maybe. But the hope that the world has is a, a passing hope. It's a temporary hope. It's a hope that's only for this life, and it only works as long as everything works out. And not only that, but just to put it very bluntly, it's an irrational hope. There's no actual reason in this world without Jesus to have hope. There's no reason to believe your family will be safe. There's no reason to believe they'll be protected. There's no reason to believe in worldly sense that you'll get that better job. All those things that you're putting your hope in, if God isn't real, there is no reason to hope those things. It's just optimism. So maybe you know some optimistic unbelievers. Why should God do good to you apart from Jesus? Why should you expect that something better is coming in a godless universe? The answer is, it's a hope against reason. It's a hope against reality. But you see, Jesus came so that you could have a real, solid, true hope that doesn't blow over in the wind. Or that you don't lose any moment that you think about it a little bit too hard. The world's hope is a hope that's as fragile as the willpower that it takes to sustain it. As long as you can keep the hope going from sheer willpower, you can have it in worldly terms. But what happens when that house of cards collapses? As far as Paul is concerned, that is not hope. Being separated from God is hopeless and peter comes in and he says jesus came so you wouldn't be separated from god anymore he says jesus suffered for you unrighteous person to bring you to god and if you're a christian tonight i want you to remember that your greatest need is to be brought to god i want you to remember what you were saved from You were without hope. And now we sing because the worst thing in our life has been repaired in a way that isn't flimsy. It isn't passing. It isn't temporary. It isn't irrational. It's not just raw, reasonless optimism. No, the the righteous one died for the unrighteous ones. He took your sin and he gave you his righteousness for a purpose 
so that he could repair what was there between you and the Father, what was broken. He said, I'm going to die for them, and I'm going to bring them to God. And there's a dual comfort here, because on the one hand, Jesus suffered. And isn't that really what Peter wants to say here, at the first at least? He suffered. And when you suffer, you know that he's been there too. And if you're in the midst of suffering right now, I want you to see this. Your suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. There's nothing inconsistent with you being a Christian, but also experiencing misery and suffering. Those things go hand in hand oftentimes. You may remember the Pharisees. They came to Jesus in the book of John and they found this man who had been born blind And they wanted to ask this deep question. Who sinned in this guy's situation? Why was this man born blind? The assumption here is this sickness, this illness, this disability, it must have happened because somebody did something wrong. Somebody did something sinful. And there are no shortage of people in this world who think that that whatever goes around comes around. They think that if you live a bad life, then you'll be miserable. And if you live a good life, then things are going to work out. And yet Peter sits before us, exhibit A, that this isn't true. Jesus Christ himself. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He never did anything wrong. And yet we counted him smitten by God and afflicted. Why? Because he suffered. Jesus is proof that suffering and righteousness often do go hand in hand. But there's another comfort. Not only has he been there, but he's been there for you. The second point this evening is that Christ proclaimed. We see this in verses 18 to 20. Now, I want to admit something right up front. This is a tough section. I struggled with this passage. In fact, months in advance, I was thinking about this passage and thinking, oh boy, uh, I'm going to try not to think about that passage too much until I get to it. Uh, It's sort of like when you know there's something difficult ahead. And that's exactly what this text was. This is a tricky section. So there's part of it that's not tricky. So let's look at that first. Peter has just told us Jesus suffered so that we could be brought to God. But then he moves on. He says that after his suffering, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Before we go any further, let's think about this part alone and isolate it and not lose it before we bring in the trickier part of the passage. All this is really saying is that Jesus's physical body was killed But the Spirit is the instrumental cause of the resurrection of Jesus' body. So we know this. uh, Jesus didn't stay dead. And what Peter is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who raised him up. This isn't unique to Peter. This isn't the only place we see this. Paul in Romans 8.11 says the Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And so his point of saying this is that if the Spirit raised Jesus physically up, he'll physically raise you up too through the same Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus is going to raise your body up one day if you're a believer in Jesus. Now here is where it gets tricky. Because Peter says he was made alive in the Spirit. 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Full stop. Part of what makes this difficult is all these ideas are being strung together. And so the way the sentence is written forces you to deal with one difficult idea and then immediately ties it together, chains it together with another difficult idea. So, so here it is. This is the verse that I think leaves us going, say what? Um, it's just tricky. So Martin Luther, I, just, I found all these encouraging quotes before I started working on this sermon. Martin Luther said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So I think, well, thanks, Martin Luther. You don't know what this text means. Um, At least he's honest. He's a very honest commentator. Um, You know, this great hero of the Reformation says, I have no idea what Peter's getting at. I think even though the passage is challenging and it's strange, there are, there are ways for us to approach this and sort of whittle down and understand what's really going on here. And I'm convinced, hopefully, if I do my job at least, by the, the time we're done, you will understand what Peter's getting at here. There are a few things we can get out of the way to make interpreting the passage easier. If you just try to think of all the options, it can almost feel frustrating. But let's narrow things down. Let's narrow down the possible readings of the passage. Um, And by the way, I'm giving credit to a fellow named Peter Davids. So uh, some of this is is his work. Um, But think about the options of what this could be. Maybe you haven't even realized how many strange options there are to what Peter is saying here. The spirits could be the souls of the faithful in the Old Testament. There are people who think that's what's going on here. And maybe that's even the way you've read this passage before. Um, Maybe the prison in this verse is the place they remained in while they're waiting for Christ to proclaim redemption to them. Some people have called this Abraham's bosom. Maybe they're in Abraham's bosom and these are faithful people just waiting to hear the gospel that they always believed. Um, I have to admit that's probably the one I've held. Until I really spent time seriously studying this. Uh, Another option is maybe the spirits are the souls of those who died during Noah's flood. And they were kept in the place of the dead. And they heard the gospel proclaimed by Christ after his death. But before his resurrection. So maybe he died. He went into Hades and proclaimed this message. And that's what's being talked about here. Uh, Another possibility is the third possibility is maybe the spirits are fallen angels from Genesis chapter six. This is around the time of the flood. And maybe the prison is where they're being kept and where they hear the proclamation of Christ's judgment. Um, Another option, uh, number four, maybe the spirits are fallen angels and the preacher is Enoch and Enoch is proclaiming judgment to them. A fifth option is maybe the spirits are demons the, the offspring of fallen angels that have taken refuge and been protected in the earth. And I will say this, if this, that's what Peter is saying, then the proclamation he's talking about is that of Christ's post-resurrection invasion of their refuge. Now, there are a lot of options as to what this could be. And maybe I just read those five options to you and you think, I don't like any of those options. Those all sound crazy to me. 
Um, well, that means that you're following along, so that's good. Um, and maybe you've long wondered about this strange passage. Well, let me, let me just mention a few important things that I think helps us think more clearly about this text. So first is this. When the word spirits is used in the Bible and it's not speaking of human beings, it always refers to non-human spiritual beings. So, for example, there's no reference to any human beings here in the passage. It just uses the word spirits. And so, biblically speaking, when, when, this, when the Bible uses the word spirits, it's referring to either angels or demons. Um, that's, the, that's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Second principle is this. When whoever heard Jesus' proclamation, proclamation in these verses were not good beings. They weren't, it's not like these were good people. Because look, it says they formerly disobeyed. So the time before, whatever that was, these are beings who were bad. You might even say malevolent. And this helps us to sort of dismiss the the idea that these are Old Testament saints that Peter's talking about. They can't be human beings because he used the word spirits, not people or or humans or, or whatever. Um, and because they're bad, they're formerly disobeyed. So this is not Old Testament saints we're talking about. And um, third, the word prison here probably doesn't refer to hell because we aren't. Now we are given a location of the place. Some commentators understand this to mean that they were spirits who are restrained under the domination of God. A final clue I think that is very helpful is we aren't told the content of what Jesus proclaimed in the spirit to these spirits. But when you consider that they were disobedient, you can surmise one thing about the message. It would not be good news for them. The Bible never speaks of angels being evangelized. It never speaks of demons or or angels as hearing good news. But at least seven times in Scripture, the Bible speaks about Jesus being victorious over spirits. I think it is reasonable then to understand that Peter is saying that evil spirits who dated as far back as the time of Noah heard a message in the resurrection of Jesus. And the message that they heard in the resurrection of Jesus was that they are now under the dominion of God and they will be judged. So in other words, human beings see the resurrection of Jesus and we see good news. Demons do not see good news in the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, they see nothing but condemnation and a promise that there is judgment coming. So the message Jesus proclaimed to them was that he was raised up and now they are defeated by God in Christ. And that is the message. Jesus has thrown down and defeated evil and sin and sickness and wickedness and all of Satan's allies. That is a majorly important New Testament message. And in the beginning of the sermon, you know, I mentioned the evangelical who taught that God gives second chances after death. And I talked about the fact that he was very fond of these verses. See, human beings get a second chance. Jesus preached even in hell after people have been judged. And I hope you see at this point that view is not a valid option. I'll cut to the chase here. This is what Peter David says. It seems likely, 
I like that. He's measured. He's careful. He's not dogmatic. He realizes this is a difficult passage, but here's how he says it. It seems likely that this passage in 1 Peter refers to a proclamation of judgment by the resurrected Christ to the imprisoned spirits, that is, the fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin and death and hell, redeeming human beings. So Peter says all of this because he wants believers to know that we're like Noah. Just like Noah, we're this small minority in a strange place where we are disliked. People don't like Christians. They don't like Christians now. They certainly didn't like Christians back in Peter's day. And you know what? Noah knew that experience as well. He knew the experience of being in a minority, not belonging in a place, uh, knowing that you are a stranger in a strange land. And Peter says we should adopt that understanding of ourselves. We should think of ourselves as very much being like Noah. And he also says that just like us, just like Noah, we've been baptized too. Noah's baptism was the flood, but our baptism involves maybe a little less water. Uh, Definitely less water than Noah. So I I hope this is clear to you. I, I hope this is more revealing than concealing. Uh, If it isn't, it's my fault, but I have to admit, finding a way to sort of open up and explore this passage is, in in an easy way, is not simple to do. It's a very tricky passage. But just as as a point of application, according to Peter, Noah was the first baptism. But I want you to notice this. Noah wasn't baptized alone. Who else was Noah baptized with? He was baptized with his whole family. Ham, Shem, Japheth, their wives, and even his own wife. And so, you know, in the mornings, we've sort of been, as we go through the book of Acts, cataloging these family baptisms. We've been looking at every time that a family is baptized. And according to Peter, this is the first family baptism that we have in Scripture. We can add this to the list along with all the others in the book of Acts. And the other application I would say is we should be baptized if we believe in Jesus, and so should our children. Family baptisms are the pattern we see in Scripture. Third and finally this evening, we see Jesus subjected, Christ subjected. In verses 21 and 22, Peter continues his thoughts from the previous verse. He keeps talking a little more about baptism. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So compared to the last verse, this one feels not nearly so difficult. So it's nice. Uh, But still, what does Peter mean? What does he mean when he says baptism now saves you? Does he mean that the actual water being poured on your actual head or sprinkled on your actual head or, you know, uh, being dunked under the water, however it happens, does he mean that that's the instrument of salvation, that this water saves you? Does he mean that we can't be saved without baptism? Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. My My family were from the Quakers, and my, I think it was my great-grandfather was a Quaker minister. 
And if you've ever gone to a Quaker service, it's very, very interesting. Consistent Quakers are very interesting people because, for one thing, they don't wear wedding rings. They don't believe in signs at all. They don't believe you should ever use signs. You should never observe signs. You should never practice signs. Now, my grandmother wore a wedding ring, uh, but some of her friends kind of looked down on her because she wore a wedding ring. Now, my grandmother also, very interestingly, was never baptized. Never baptized. Just saintly woman, loved Jesus. I'm confident she is with, was with the Lord, and she was never baptized. And I would sit with her and talk with her. I'd say, Grandma, why haven't you been baptized? You're a believer in Jesus. Jesus commands baptism. It's so clear. Why won't you do it? And the response she always gave me was word for word the same. And I'm sure she heard it for years. And she never gave it up. She said, it's an outward sign of an inward work. It's an outward sign of an inward work. So as far as she was concerned, she was baptized on the inside. And as, uh, as far as she was concerned, there was no need for any sort of sign. Um, but is Peter saying here that if you're not baptized, you're not saved? I think a helpful thing to remember in answering these questions is this. Sometimes in the Bible, the thing that is used as the sign is spoken of as if it's the thing that it points to. And so God is very fond of doing this, especially with the sacraments. You know, we have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. And so think about this. Jesus holds up a piece of bread at the Last Supper. And what does he say? He says, this is my body. This is my body. He talks about the bread as if it is his body. Or think about this. He holds up the glass. He holds up the the cup of wine. And he says, this is my blood. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't explain what he means by it. He, he, He assumes that his listeners, the disciples, understand what a sign is. And Peter points to baptism and he says, this now saves you. He talks about it just as if it's the thing that saves you. So without explanation, the sign is spoken of as if it's the thing that it points to. And, and I've read some Baptist commentators and they, they see baptism of Noah's family here. And they say, well, this baptism is supposed, baptism is supposed to be total uh, submersion. Uh, and they're very insistent on this because they say this has to indicate death or has to indicate drowning. But the baptism Noah's family got was just sprinkling. Just to be blunt, I, it was a lot of sprinkling. It was a lot of liquid. Uh, but it wasn't, they didn't, they weren't drowned. They were kept above the waters. They, were nev- they never went under. They were never submerged. They were all recipients of a baptism by the pouring of water from God. So, so how is it that we can survive the judgment the way Noah and his family survived the judgment. Peter puts his finger very carefully on the resurrection of Jesus at the end of verse 21. And then he concludes with these beautiful words. He says, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And so the point here is not that the act of pouring water on you is what saves you, but the act of pouring water on you points to the thing that saves you. Now look what Peter does. He says, all those disobedient spirits, they're subjected to Jesus now. That's actually how he ends. He says, they're at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That brings us back to the trickiest part of this whole passage. 
He's revisiting that tricky part where he's basically saying those angels heard the words of judgment when they saw Jesus raised up. And now they're all subjected to Jesus now. All those authorities and powers and villainous ones who set themselves against the Lord, they're subjected to him now. Why? Because after the resurrection, if I might be blunt, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. People, um, especially modern people, they, they like to make Jesus out to be a peaceful hippie. But here we see that, oh, oh no, Jesus is exalted now. He's, he's a judge now. He sits at the Father's right hand now. He's, he's risen now. He's ascended now. And now he's on the throne. There is no more spitting on Jesus. There is no more plucking his beard. There is no more striking and disrespecting the Lord. And now judgment is coming, and that, that message is there for all to see loud and clear. How does this speak to God's suffering people? After all, that's why Peter wrote this. Peter wrote this for hurting people. Peter wrote this for suffering people. How, does this any, how is this any good for you? How does this lift us up? How does this carry us when we go through hard times and when we're hurting and when our souls are in distress? Well, the encouragement is this. The Lord who saved you is the Lord who loves you. The Lord who loves you is the Lord who laid his very life down for you. The Lord who laid his life down for you is the same Lord who is victorious, powerful, and almighty. And he rules over every single enemy and struggle that he has and that you have because you're his child. And this means that when you suffer... God is still ruling and reigning. It means that your suffering is not a sign that the forces of evil are spilling over the banks and ruining God's plan. Instead, it means that no matter what you are going through at this moment, you are right where God intends you to be. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy for us to tell ourselves that the things in our life have gone off the rails. It's easy for us to believe that we are living in a world of accidents because things often do look that way and things often don't work out the way we plan. But would you remind us tonight, O oh God, that you rule and reign over us right now. That you are on the throne, high and lifted up, and that you are not surprised by anything that is happening in our life. Would you hold us secure in that knowledge tonight? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.